if it if it was about willpower, it, AA wouldn't be a thing. There's something something deeper, you know. Your your uh, your choice is taking for, taken from you at some point. All right, welcome to the Recovery Edgecast. My name is Alfredo, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Alfredo. And hi, Patrick. I am sitting here with Patrick and his son Beck. Hello. And um, this is, I guess, the theme of this is kind of like the family afterwards. But why don't we uh, start? Or during? Or during? Yeah, sure. Um, really, it's going to be about the journey as father and son in recovery. Because um, this is really a rarity to have a father and son in recovery. So, Beck, can you tell us what it was like for you growing up with an alcoholic dad? Well, uh, it is, as it relates to uh, alcoholism, I just remember as a kid, uh, my brother and I, when, when school got out, we would walk to this bar that was close to the school. It's called Laddie's. We'd walk to the bar and meet up with dad after school every day. So it was a lot of time, like a lot of, uh, you know, me and my brother playing uh, video games and shooting pool and stuff in a bar while dad was drinking. And then, and then you know, we'd go home at, I don't know, whenever dad was done drinking. And uh, so my brother still remembers the number by heart of, of Laddie's. And whenever I needed to get a hold of dad, I'd call him at Laddie's. So um, it was just a lot. Uh, a lot of drinking, a lot of being around a bar, and um, and it normalized drinking for me. It made me think, "Oh, this is cool. This is the thing to do." Um, so when I when I had an opportunity to drink, I didn't think twice about it because my dad was drinking every day. So, I you know it's not a, that big of a deal. Um, Patrick, did you worry about the influence? of your drinking did you worry about the influence that you were having on your son no why would i do that i was a selfish <laughs> and self-absorbed person okay um deep down inside of me yes because i did not have that example mm-hmm. my parents were not drinkers they were really incredible people uh so i did not have that as an exemplar in terms of parents. But I also didn't care um, because it was all about me. And uh, I'm sorry, everything else, including my children's welfare, homework, uh, moral upbringing, all of it, none of it was as important as me making sure that I was uh, half-baked all the time. Beck, at this point, have you noticed that your dad's drinking was becoming a problem? No, not really. Uh, I I do remember him getting a DUI once, and but that was pretty much... And, and my stepmom always ragging on him about drinking, but, uh, but I, I didn't really see the, like the bottoms, you know, I, I, I just saw, you know, the superficial outside, you know, my dad drinks at a bar every day, but he's, he's fine. He's not a drunk, you know, as, as far as I knew, um, until like later when, you know, when I was probably a senior in high school or something, one time, uh, came home from school and dad was passed out in the bathroom and, 
just like little things like that. Um, I started noticing, but I, I, I was really kind of, I didn't know the, the severity of it. Um, yeah, I didn't know the severity of, of, or how deep is the alcoholism was until I, I was out of the house really. Mm. So then when, by the time you were out of the house, what year was this? 98. I left, I left as soon as I turned 18. So you were in your last couple of years, Patrick, of drinking. Yes. And, and interestingly, uh, I remember, uh, and, and Beck had shared in his interview with you about going to recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being part of that and suggesting it and saying, you're doing this. I was probably having a drink while I was telling him that. Hmm. So, so you had cared for his well-being as it comes to addiction, but... At the same time, you were kind of battling your own? No, that is not a good summation of it. A, a better summation of it is um, that Momar I was married to, mm-hmm. she was all about it, mm-hmm. which meant I had to be all about it. Um, and her being all about it really had nothing to do with her being in a loving and caring and nurturing, nurturing position. It was more about uh, dictatorship and control and power. Hmm. So unfortunately, um, the only time that I kind of cared is if it affected me. I didn't care about her and, and how things affected her. I remember one time we kept having problems with the automobile it was a relatively new Dodge. I don't want to name the exact um, model because who knows? I could be sued because this is going on the internet. Anyway, uh, she would, I mean, she was such a militant control freak. Everything was perfect on the outside. Like we had a great house and you know, it's all remodeled and everything. But like, you know, we'd get a new stove and there'd be a tiny little scratch on it somewhere and she'd make him bring her another one. We actually went through two that didn't meet her standard. And then um, on the third one, it was okay. But uh, the only time I cared really and could align with her is if it affected me. Uh, otherwise I was not on her side. So when we went to the, uh, car dealership to deal with the Dodge, and again, I don't want to mention that it was a caravan model. Um, she, she was just like, oh my God, what a bitch. I mean, she's just a monster. And then she would have me participate with her. And I remember one time going there, I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to do anything like this. Um, the guy, the service rep, the manager, we're sitting across from him, and he and I are communicating telepathically. He's like, man, you're married to that? And I'm like, dude, man, you should not even be in my shoes. You think this is bad? You should live with that. Um, so sometimes my... Uh, refusal to be a good father was more in a retaliation against her or punishment of her or a discounting of her, period. But 
I remember that after the boy's mom died, we were having some problems with uh, disciplinary problems in school where frequently they would get these things called referrals, which meant that I had to go pick them up because they wouldn't be able to ride the bus home. And when that shit started happening, then I got very fatherly. Hmm. Anything that affected me, I could kind of bring something to it beyond drinking. Otherwise, I'd just say, eh, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you feel when your kids started drinking? Because, um, I, I mean, I imagine it was without your permission. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean. Were you concerned or just like, eh, you know, I did it too? I was more the latter. Yeah, yeah I did it too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just almost a rite of passage. Yeah. And so I did not have tons of attention on it. Like I said, if it didn't affect me, I'd be good. Mm-hmm. Um, I One thing I did a lot that Beck can uh, confirm is um, when the kids, when I had full custody of the kids because of their mom's passing, however, I'd gotten full custody prior to that, um, we would do a lot of outdoor stuff, a lot of fishing and hiking and camping. And, you know, the kids thought that was pretty cool. They were hunting animals and stuff. And um, in retrospect, what they were doing is what I wanted to do, you know. And, like, I'd even set up their tent so I'd have it all the way I wanted it. And they didn't have their life. They were living my life or what I wanted to do. Uh, I'm circling the airport and I'm not bringing this in. What was the question? No, that's okay. Beck, do you want to chime in? Oh, wait, I know what I was going to say. I had a new truck uh, when the kids came into my life and it was a bench seat. So the kids rode in the back a lot of times uh, because I would be going with my girlfriend or whatever. And the kids would ride in the back no seat belts. They'd just be sitting on some pillows back there. And uh, I've driven with the kids while I was tripping on shrooms, drinking. Um, that shows a, a, a pretty phenomenal uh, disconnect with the well-being of my kids. Did you know your dad was tripping on shrooms and just... Whatever back then? No, I didn't know he was dripping on shrooms, but I knew that he was uh, drinking. I knew that drinking was a, you know, a big thing in his life. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, like I said before, kind of just normalized it for me. I didn't think there was anything wrong with drinking with, you know, your buddies at 13, 14, 15 years mm-hmm. old. So, uh, yeah. Did you think there's anything wrong with riding in the back of the truck? No, nope, totally normal. And, that, and that's the thing. Like I, when I tell people about, you know, going to the bar after school and stuff, they're always like, oh, my God, that's so horrible. But I, I didn't know any better. And, you know, our dad, uh, we were we didn't want for anything. We always had clothes and we always were fed and he wasn't beating us and stuff like that. So I, I didn't really think I had a bad childhood at all. And I still don't. 
you know, I was just, I was just raised in the environment that I was raised in. Mm-hmm. And it's not rough. It wasn't that rough. I had, I've, I have clients that have a way worse upbringing, but you know, it, of course it could have been better. And, uh, if dad was more present, but it is what it is, man. So then your dad gets sober. How did you react? <laughs> I was actually, I was 20 years old at the time. Right. And uh-huh. I, I remember <laughs> talking to my brother about it uh, and he was telling me how dad is sober now and, and he's, you know, their relationship has never been better. And I'm in the Navy at this time. So like, I didn't get to see them, you know, I just, I wasn't there. I was out to sea or doing whatever. But, uh, I remember my brother Dell telling me that dad got sober. And my first thought was, oh man, I, I was bummed out because I wanted to go to the bar and drink with my dad. Hmm. So, uh, that's kind of what I thought. I, again, totally selfish and, um, self-absorbed I was thinking about me and not, not, you know, I'm bummed out cause I can't go drink with my dad. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I wasn't like, Oh, that's, that's fantastic that he got sober. As you were kind of, uh, reaching, I guess, your bottom or your end mm-hmm. before then in those years, did you always have that in the back of your mind that maybe you need to reach out to your dad a bit? Well, um, yeah, the, the reason that I'm sober today is because of my dad. Um, because like I said before in the earlier interview, I had been exposed to AA since I was probably like 14 or 16 years old, somewhere around there when they were still smoking in the rooms and stuff. Um, I had to go to AA meetings and I thought it was bullshit cult, you know? And then again, when I was 21, I got a DUI and I, I had to go to AA meetings for, you know, the, the court process or whatever. And I, I thought it was bullshit again. Even though my dad had gotten sober at that point, I still thought, you know, I, I just wasn't ready. But then when I was 35 and I got thrown in jail and my dad said it was ready, you know, it's time. Um, I thought, that's when I was thinking I should really take a look at this because I know my dad was a pretty gnarly drunk and it worked for him and he's been sober for, you know, at that point, like 15 years. Um, so I wouldn't have taken, I wouldn't have put in as much, uh, I wouldn't have, um, put any stock into AA unless I knew that my dad got sober from it, you know? So I just would have thought it was more bullshit, but I know that my dad got sober in AA. So maybe I could too. And that's when I really started to, to go at it with an open mind and um, really, you know, going and, and hear the, the, the message. What was it like, Patrick, writing that letter on that day? Well, um, it, it served a couple of uh, functions. First of all, we really couldn't talk on the phone. Uh, he had no phone privileges. So um, our communication had to be through the mail, and I started it. I, I wanted him to know that I cared about his life and what was going on in it, um, in that I could be present now. Um, so I wrote him a number of uh, letters and you know, he did call me when this first happened and asked me if I'd give him bail. And I said, no way. You know, because I'm at a point now in my life where I'm expecting the call. You know, this is the 
San Diego Police Department, and we regretfully have to tell you that your son was killed in a car accident today, and you know, or some horrid thing like that. I was expecting that kind of call because I knew what kind of a addict he was. And so when he was put in jail, um, I could be present for that. I did not, I said no to bail because I didn't have to worry about where he was or what he was doing or if he's going to get killed. Um, I did not, uh, give money to the commissary for him to have, you know, luxuries that you could have in that environment. I did initially uh, buy candy because I figured he was probably uh, potentially uh, detoxing. And my experience was is the sugar that I was missing from my drinking had to come from some other place. And, you know, that was something I just remember. And I thought, I'm going to buy him candy and toiletries, but that's it. And I'm going to communicate with them. And so it served uh, that in, in that I was basically saying, I love you and I care about you. But I was also sort of weaving the message in there as well. So I was sort of 12th stepping through the letter, letters. And Beck was writing back to me, and, you know, we, we were forming a connection that was now very profound and very important and serious, mm. which was probably the first time in our lives. Yeah. Had you ever suggested a 12-step program? Yeah. Uh, we... we we were, I was out here at my brother's place, uh, and we were playing home. Well, he didn't suggest it at the time, but I was at, as a we were playing home run derby right out here in this yard, mm-hmm. and I'm drunk, and uh, I can't hit a ball to save my life, and I'm throwing, I'm raging about it, throwing a fit, and uh, and then I went, I took this the rental car, and I went over to the liquor store right over here, and I was so pissed off, and I've got like six shooters, and I shot them down. And uh, got back, and Dad. I just remember Dad looking at me like just total disappointment, you know. And then later, I had a, an email talking about how I might want to check out the uh, the program. Mm-hmm. That was really a. That's just something that I'll always remember, like how just the look that he gave me, like, man, you're you're pathetic, dude. Like, but it wasn't like it was. It was just like concerned, kind of. But it was just. It was. It was. Worse than any kind of talking to I could have had. Just the look. Like, it was just like, what are, you, what are you doing, man? What are you doing with your life? Yeah. And this must have felt weird because you saw your dad as a drunk mm-hmm. early in right. your life. To him have this look and trying to help you out now. Right. Or to call you a drunk now, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, that's probably why it hit home. Um, and I remember in that, that letter that, uh, he wrote me or the email that he wrote me is like, of course you can't hit a ball, man. You're, you're drunk. You know, what are you doing? And, and it's just, and and he, he would know, you know, he would know. I, I think I'm pulling the wool over everyone's eyes, but I'm not, especially not a, seasoned alcoholic like my father you know <laughs> yeah yeah i remember i remember that day because uh 
I was still with my third wife, um, which, by the way, I have to say that marital situations uh, can be compelled by alcoholism and you can make a lot of mistakes. Anyway, um, I could see Beck coming back. And my wife said, I wonder where he went. And I said, he went to the liquor store. You know, I just knew. Mm-hmm. You know, and I even thought maybe he'd been doing some drugs. But uh, she didn't recognize it because she was not an alcoholic. But I recognized that behavior. You know, leaving the family, you're all pissed off. Go for a little drive. Where else do you go? You go to the liquor store. And he didn't bring anything back. <laughs> you know, he came back with nothing. Nothing. And it's like, yeah, he hammered him. Uh, so, so I don't, I don't remember the look, of course, because I wasn't receiving it. Yeah. But I knew, I knew. God, what a mess. Yeah, that was probably about a year, about a year before I got sober. It was I, I was in a bad spot. I was bad at that point, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the first year you were sober, then how did your relationship change with your dad? It's uh, it changed astronomically. Um, I've never felt more connected with my dad, and. Uh, uh, I just, I know I could go to him for guidance on anything, but especially, um, recovery stuff. And I have no problem talking to him about anything. Um, because he knows, I know he knows just like every, every person in a room, you know, it's the one, the one thing that we all have in common, whether you're black or white or rich or poor, or you come from one of the greatest families and homes ever, or you come from a shit, you know, the foster system we all have that one thing in common that we're all addicts and, and alcoholics. So I know that we have that in common for sure. And I know that I could talk to him about it. And I know that I could talk to him about anything without judgment. And, and he's been there before. So our relationship has never been better. And, and it's like, I don't know. It's just a, it's a beautiful thing, man. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, initially, when he got sober, we talked program stuff. Yeah. And... Um, I thought it was all really good that we were talking program stuff. Now, you guys are able to look at other family members now. Um, you've had a couple tragedies, right? Yeah, I've had two brothers die from alcoholism. Why don't you take us through that a little bit, and then maybe you can give us your perspective on your uncles. Um. The first brother, uh, I held my mom's hand throughout that period um, with his drinking and the consequences that he was suffering, and my mom just could not understand it. She was definitely a person who viewed this as a willpower thing and not a spiritual anomaly or even a disease. Uh, You know, why can't he just not drink? And I said, Mom, you need to read the big book. And I think you need to go to Al-Anon. And you need to stop enabling. I mean, my parents would send him money whenever he needed it, which was 
relatively frequently. I mean, he even asked my parents if he could have his inheritance. That was probably a couple years before he died. Um, so he was having financial troubles. He was drinking daily, and he was drinking uh, 18 beers a day. He started his morning with beer. He did not drink hard liquor. It was beer. And, uh, but he started having consequences, and my mom was sideways with it, but she never did read the big book. And she did go to Allen on one time, but she saw all the differences and no similarities. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ended up taking his own life. And I mean, a lot of things. When when my family got to his apartment uh, to clean it out and stuff, there was a stack of bills. I mean, like literally a couple feet high, just bills that he was not paying, including bills from the IRS. Um, so his life was just totally unmanageable. Uh, and, you know, they didn't see any of this stuff because he would tell them otherwise. Anyway, he dies, and at his memorial service, uh, I noticed that my other brother... Richard had moved his car from the parking lot at the funeral home and moved it into an adjacent kitty corner lot that was elevated. And I went out of the uh, visitation to get some fresh air or something, and I saw him up there drinking. And he was literally sitting on his tailgate of his car. And I went up to him and I said, dude, man, this is not a tailgate party. Your, your brother's laying in a box in there from that shit right there. And from that day on, uh, Richard has been a topic of conversation with me and my mom and dad. So we're talking years. It was about five years. Uh, we talked a lot about his drinking because it was getting worse and worse and worse. My, uh, my mom was so ignorant to this, I'll never forget Um, The whole family was together, the brothers and the wives, and my parents, and I was sitting right next to my mom, and my brother comes up and says, he said, all right, if I have a beer, and she said yes. And we're, I mean, the visitation hasn't even started. It's the day before, but all the family was together because we're all going to be there, of course. And... Later that day, when people went to their hotels or whatever, or went home, I pointed that out to her. I said, Mom, you know, Richard has a drinking problem, and he doesn't want to have a drink. He wants permission to have that first one because that just is going to start a domino effect of drinking. And those are the kinds of things that are enabling and I wasn't trying to make her wrong. I was trying to educate her about enabling. And I said, a better way to treat that when he leaned in between us and asked you if he could have a beer is to say something to the effect, really? We're here for your brother's service, and you want to have a beer? You know, but she said, sure, because she doesn't understand it. She doesn't understand that that's just permission to have a lot of beers. Right. Beck, were you close to your uncle? 
Yeah, I mean, not not really uh, close. Like I'd see him once a year, and we'd have a good mm-hmm. time, and and yeah. you know, early before I got sober, have drink together and stuff like that, family reunions. And I loved him and and everything, but I wasn't super close to him. But I I remember the the first my my uncle Daniel. I was still uh, in my addiction when he died, and it was a total shock and surprise because I didn't know, you know, the insidious insidiousness of alcoholism and addiction, and that it could kill you. So I was I was shocked when he died, and um, I got the news that Uncle Richard died like three days ago or so three or four days ago we were in me and my brother were in the mountains hunting and uh and my first thought was well we all saw that coming you know and it's it's because Richard has been um he's been you know struggling with it for the last few years and it's just like it wasn't a surprise And, and especially like with what I do for a living um as a as a counselor people die all the time you know like, like my dad says, you're going to step over some bodies if you stay long enough in the program. So with Uncle Richard, it was it was not a surprise at all. And with Richard, um, my mom did read the big book. Um, and I said to her, because she's an avid reader, she eats books. Uh, I mean, that's what she did in her spare time is eat, is read, 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 read. And I said, Mom, this is a 164 pages. You got to read the the hundred first 164. Of course, she did end up getting into the stories, but um, I said this will be easy for you. You could probably read that book while you're taking a rasty, no problem. And uh, she read it and was reading it, and we would talk and stuff. And she said, "It is the hardest book I've ever read." I don't understand it. I don't get it. You know, it's but. hard for people to to understand uh, that it's not willpower. Right. Um, I have clients that love their kids. You know, at least that's what they tell me. And they cannot stop drinking or drugging, and they lose their kids. You know, it's just if it if it was about willpower, it, AA wouldn't be a thing. There's something something deeper, you know. Your mm-hmm. your uh, your choice is taking fr- taken from you at some point. The the good thing too about her reading the big book is that the predictions I would make about Richard were coming true, and she could see they were in the book as well. So it wasn't a huge surprise. And uh, in the last year, he was hospitalized numerous times he was told two years ago at a doctor's appointment you have not done any structural damage yet and my mom was at that it was a a meeting with the doctor after a test for a potential uh, esophageal varices or something like that and um, the doctor said to my brother you need to find religion which is not something we would say, but it was my mom, uh, now knowing more about alcoholism, said, oh, uh, do you mean like he should go to AA? And the doctor said, yes, he should go to AA. Mm. 
he flipped out. He, he started raging at my mom. And that's just something that our family doesn't do. We have huge family reunions and no one's fighting about anything. We're all having a great time. And so for him to rage at her the way he did um, really pissed me off and pissed off some of my other brothers. But that was kind of the start of it. He just kept going downhill from there, and he was told two other times, including very recently, if you have one more drink, you're going to die. But he kept drinking. And here both of you guys are as survivors, really, in a family that's been hit twice as hard with this with the fatal illness you know yeah I shared that with my mom I thought it was important that she hear that Mm -hmm. because of the recidivism and the general statistics on sobriety and Mm -hmm. remaining sober is like five percent of people uh, who enter a sober journey stay with it five percent And um, I said, Mom, you have me and Joe. I have a brother that's been sober for 15 years. Um, And Beck, you you have three family members that have uh, gone into sobriety and so far have maintained sobriety. And those are pretty high statistics. And I've seen from your story here a couple of patterns break. Um, first of all, you guys both escaped from the clutches of addiction, broke that pattern. And the other pattern is that you are still around for your son, where you had multiple men die off in your life who were not here. And you were headed down that way where you could have easily been picked off. Oh, yeah. You know? I, so, I could have very easily been picked off. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting the way and the plethora of how alcoholism can pick you off. Uh, most people think it's about cirrhosis of the liver or crashing your car. You know, I think a lot of people just, like you'll read about a, a person dying and it'll say something like a car wreck, but they don't tell you that it was while they were intoxicated and that they had a drinking problem, it's really alcoholism that killed them. Um, I have a friend, you may know him, his um, name for years was Tino, but now he goes, okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every one of his siblings is dead from alcoholism. And there was a number of them. I want to say like four. But the most interesting one of the four is one of his brothers who had gotten a DUI um, was riding his bicycle to the liquor store and got hit by a car and killed. So was it the car that killed him? Or was it the fact that he was riding his bike to the liquor store because he couldn't drive mm-hmm. anymore? To me, that's alcoholism. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it'll pick you off in a myriad of, of ways that you don't know. So there's sort of a lessening or a lack of stigma on alcoholism that I think needs to be understood. Beck, have you got any final thoughts? Um, don't drink and don't kill yourself. <laughs> I, I have a fi- final thought. 
clean house, help others, and trust God. All right. Thank you guys for doing this. It's a great story. Tragic, but um, impactful, powerful. Yeah, there's two narratives there. There's the narrative of what alcoholism can do, and then there's the narrative of sobriety. I don't think it's tragic at all. Our story isn't. My uncle's, yes. Yeah. But our, our story is uh, a fantastic one, I think. Mm-hmm. And so is yours, by the way. Oh, look where I'm at. Yeah, right. You're sitting with a couple of loser drunks. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of champs, man. That's awesome. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up. Thanks. Thanks again. Thanks thank for inviting us. Of course. Thank you. Thanks again, Patrick and Beck, for sharing your story of hope with us. It was a real pleasure to have a father-son perspective on recovery. That's a wrap for episode 11. Thank you listeners for checking us out. And don't forget to share this podcast with others. You can find the Recovery Edgecast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and now iHeartRadio and Amazon Music. And as always, at recoveryedgecast.com. We'll see you next time.